So my friends, let us pray. Holy God, may all that we do and say in this day be well and good in your sight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So picture it. Bethlehem. At the turn of the century, Christmas Eve. An exasperated and weary Joseph stumbles into town with Mary in tow, knocks on the door of the inn, and asks the innkeeper, Do you have any rooms? The innkeeper shook his head and replied, No, we're all full. Joseph pleaded, Listen, my wife is pregnant. The innkeeper retorted, Hey, that's not my fault. To which Joseph shouted, It's not mine either. So would it surprise you to know that there is actually no mention of an actual innkeeper in the birth narrative of Jesus? In case you didn't catch it, it simply says, because there was no room for them at the inn. And it doesn't matter what translation you read. There is only one place in the Gospels where there is a mention of an actual innkeeper. And I am going to give 25% off your next donation to the church if you know the answer to this question. Anybody? It is actually in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And not to mess you up any further, how many wise men show up in Jesus' nativity story? I hear three, and then I heard, I don't know. We don't know, exactly. We have no idea. It actually never says three wise men. So there you go. Merry Christmas. <laughs> so there is a Jewish form of biblical interpretation called Midrash. And Midrash was used most prominently by ancient Judaic authorities as a means to try to draw out more from the scriptures than what is actually written. It's almost a way of filling in the blanks with potential information that was not included by the authors of what we now call the biblical text. This Advent season, we have been enjoying this amazing series called Witness His Majesty, as produced by the Skit Guys, and they have employed the use of Midrash as they told the birth story of Jesus through the eyes of people who are not actually mentioned in Scripture, like the mother of Mary, the shepherd's wife, and today, the innkeeper's son. They took some artistic liberties with these stories by creating characters that have helped us to see what is for many of us a very familiar story from a different viewpoint and consider different aspects that we may not have thought of before. Now, to be clear, the gospel as it is written stands on its own with no embellishment needed. And the heart of the salvation story has all the details necessary about, upon which we can place our trust. Employing this form of biblical storytelling is a way of showing that we are all players in God's story and that we all come at it from different places. And perhaps listening to these different characters share their perspective of what it meant for them to make witness to his majesty through Jesus' birth may help us see that we, too, can make witness with our own lives as we celebrate the season and what it means to live lives with the truth of Emmanuel, God with us.
So this week, we heard the story of the innkeeper's son, and we now know that there wasn't even an actual innkeeper mentioned in the nativity story, let alone his son. But before we can get to the front door of the inn, we need to take a moment and reflect and consider on why Mary and Joseph ended up at the door of an inn in Bethlehem to begin with. The beginning of this morning's scripture gives us some historical background, as we know that Caesar Augustus was in power and demanded that all of those living within the Roman world must be counted. In order to do this properly, one was forced to go back to their hometowns to do this, and Bethlehem was Joseph's hometown, for he was a descendant from the line of David, and Bethlehem was also David's hometown. Now the timing couldn't be worse. It's approximately 80 miles from Nazareth, where Mary and Joseph were living at the time, to Bethlehem. A journey that typically takes about six or seven days on foot, and a journey that wasn't uncommon for folks back then, because Bethlehem sits right outside of the city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was where the Jewish people would go to celebrate their high holy days. So the route was familiar. However, Mary was pregnant, very pregnant. And they knew her time was drawing near, so the prospect of making that 80-mile trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem was daunting. But when you're under the thumb of Rome, you have no choice but to jump when they tell you to jump, regardless of the situation. And those 80 miles, though a familiar trek, took travelers through some very difficult terrain. There is nothing about Jesus's life story, from the manger to the empty tomb, that is accidental. And it was no accident that his parents ended up in Bethlehem just in time for his birth. After all, the prophet Micah, writing 700 years before the birth of Christ, said the following, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So God had a plan, and he made a way to make sure that his prophecies were fulfilled. He made a way, as he always makes a way, and though the journey may not be easy, it's a journey that needs to be taken in order to experience the fullness of God's goodness. And the same was true in this moment for Mary and Joseph. Now, since Rome had just made this decree that forced all Israelites to return to their hometowns for the census, basically all at the same time, it seems only fitting that the town would be packed and crowded, especially a town like Bethlehem, though small, was still an ancient suburb of Jerusalem, and it is still to this day. And though, perhaps, most of us imagine this story in our mind's eye, and we see Joseph trying to get a place at the nearest hotel and being turned away, in essence, what more than likely really happened was that Joseph had intended to stay with family. It was his hometown after all, but because of the influx of visitors all at once, 
This was why Mary and Joseph ended up giving birth in a stable or a barn. Though this may seem like cruel hospitality with such cruel, crude arrangements, especially by family members, let's consider for a moment the living practices of those in first century Israel. Many homes back then in this part of the world tended to be built atop of a cave or a grotto with the first level containing two rooms, one a kitchen and common space, and the other acting as the sleeping quarters for the entire family. More wealthy families, and I do use the term wealthy loosely, had a second story or an upper room that was most commonly used as a guest house or an inn. The cave upon which the house was built was essentially their barn or their stable where they kept their livestock at night. And this also served as a heating mechanism for the entire house, as the heat from the bodies of the animals would rise, heating the home and acting as a living furnace. But regardless, whether Jesus was born in the cave of a family home or in a more traditional stable behind an ancient inn, we do know for a fact that Mary wrapped Jesus in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. The king of the world and the creator of the universe was born into a family of ordinary people and born into the most humblest of circumstances. But let's take a minute and head back into the more traditional notion that Mary and Joseph did indeed encounter an innkeeper, a man who turned them away from a clean room and a warm bed and sent them to the only scrap of real estate that he could. And that was the barn with the animals. And let's revisit this night with the innkeeper's son and the possibility of his existence and his perspective. The story we heard from the video we just watched was the innkeeper's son, now a grown man, reflecting back to the time when he was 14 years old and working for his dad at the family inn. He comments about what he was like as a 14-year-old, thinking that he knew everything, and that if his dad would only listen to his ideas, then the family business would be more successful. And he would get frustrated because he felt like his dad never took him seriously or his ideas seriously. He felt like he knew all about life and managing the business and that he no longer needed his dad to manage his affairs or that of the inn. When the 14-year-old son read about the upcoming Roman census, he immediately deduced that the inn was about to get very busy with the influx of guests into the town. So he wanted to expand make their inn bigger, even drawing up plans to get this to work, all while thinking that he knew best, and that it was time to take over the family business from his father and become the innkeeper himself. And of course, his father just patted his 14-year-old son on the back and thanked him for the idea and just went on with his business, no doubt drawing the ire of his angsty 14-year-old son while doing so. Upon the arrival of the guests in Bethlehem, the innkeeper's son recalls all the grunt work that he had to do, from washing linens, to sweeping, to cleaning out the stalls of the stable. 
And this was where he had his encounter with the soon-to-be Holy Family. And he had no idea what to do. Though he thought he knew all about being an innkeeper and running the family business and being his own man, in that moment of great adversity, when he was faced with Mary in active labor and a panicked husband, he was clueless as to how to react, and he understandably had no idea what to do. And then in walked his father in the midst of the chaos, equipped with blankets and water, and he was handling the adversity. In the words of his son, he said he was doing what he always does, saving him. And that night, the innkeeper's son recognized his father had saved Mary and Joseph too. The son goes on to say that for years after, he kept trying to convince his father that he was a hero that night, to which his father always simply replied, boy, all's I did was make room. The hero that night was God, coming down to save us all. All I did was make room, said the innkeeper. So oftentimes we have ideas for our own lives and thinking that we know what is best, thinking that we have it all figured out and that we don't need any help from anyone. And there may, may be times when we share our plans with God and he just simply laughs, simply because he truly knows what is best and has something better in store for us. Our prayer life may reflect this. When we have prayers that we offer to God and get frustrated when they don't get answered, or in other words, when they don't get answered in the way we want them to. But I think the bigger question is this. What are we each doing to make room in our lives for God to truly have his way with us? To surrender all that we are and all that we have to the will of a God who simply knows best. So what about you? What are those places in life where you think you've got it all figured out, but really you're just an angsty, immature 14-year-old who could really use God to step in and save you? I believe we all have places like that in our lives, places where the only thing that will save us from ourselves is the wisdom and sovereignty of our Creator. Oftentimes, we just need the wisdom to simply make room. Local journalist and author Mitch Album wrote an article that was published in the Detroit Free Press in November of this year, and it was titled, Losing Our Religion and Replacing It with the Church of Social Media. And in this article, he says this, we are shedding religion, yet we are acting more righteous than ever. But there's a big difference between self-righteous and righteous. The latter is doing the right thing when no one is looking. The former is saying you're right when everyone is looking. The seduction and danger of the internet is the power it offers our self-righteousness. You virtue posture, you get immediate gratification, you put someone down for not being enlightened, you get a thousand likes, you offer thoughts and prayers with a few keystrokes and little hearts appear, 
confirming your goodness. But note, all of these things are self-oriented. They're all about us. A higher power never comes into question. But the concept of something bigger than us is central to most faiths, a divine force that governs the universe. God doesn't fit inside of an iPhone, but I can attest being much closer to the end of my life than the beginning and having so many, seen so many people leave this earth that in our most dire moments, in the operating rooms, the burning buildings, or the echoes of flying bullets, the digital community offers no comfort and our politics offer no protection. Why do we cry out for help then? And to who do we cry out for help? Twitter? So what about you? What about each and every one of us? Nothing else can properly fill the void within our souls that I believe God has created just for himself to fill. And though some of us may not be turning to social media to fill these spaces in our lives, chances are good. We are filling a void with something devoid of the satisfaction that only God can provide. Yet we are still successfully cluttering up our souls and cramming our lives full of everything but. So what about you? Are you willing to make room? Are you willing to make a space for God, the true hero in that stable 2,000 years ago, the true hero on that first Easter morning, and the true hero who continues to live and reign today? Are you willing to make room so that the whole world may witness his majesty through your life? May it be so. Amen.